Hey, good morning. Grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. I know people will be coming in still. Just ignore them as they come in. It's good to see you. Listen, if you have a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes 8. And while you're turning there, just a couple of announcements. Today is our church's big birthday party. So that's going to happen this afternoon. If you haven't RSVP'd for that, but that's something that you want to go to, feel free to come to that. We also make it our annual chili cook-off. So every year we have a giant chili contest and people bring their best recipe and we all tell them it's either really good or it's really bad and we give prizes away to prove it, right? But it's also going to be our field day, so we're going to have some activities outside for everybody. Um, If you do come, bring a mask. You won't always need to wear it. There will be times where it makes sense and times where it does not. But be sure to bring one with you and we'll have a little temperature gun that we can kind of zap you in the head and make sure that you're safe to be there. But listen, that's a big deal for us as a church. And we understand that this year might be a little different. Typically, we have a lot of people at something like this. And we know that this year, it it might be probably a little smaller, maybe a little bit less chilly. But let me tell you why I feel like it's a richer celebration for us as a church. I mean, it'll be our ninth birthday. We haven't even hit the decade mark yet. I mean, when we, we launched nine years ago, we actually were in a house for about uh, almost a year before that. Um, but I think any time a church gets to celebrate another year of growing and being thriving in this last year that's been very difficult for everybody, I think we should take that opportunity. I think we should call a win a win. We should celebrate where we can. And so I'm excited about today, not because I'm, I'm hopeful for some big celebration just for the sake of having something big, but for the sake of being able to thank the Lord for doing something very sweet for us as a church. Because we have thrived. We, we've seen less of our friends come and go because of COVID. But as a church, we've gotten deeper in some very key areas that I'm very excited about. So that is today. It's going to be it's what, what's called the KCAB or the Knoxville County Association of Baptists. It's in West Knoxville. You can find the information for this on our website, LegacyKnoxville.com. If you're a guest today, we'd love for you to come out and spend some time with us. Just eat some chili, meet some people. It's going to be a lot of fun. Also, if you're a guest today, and I'm not sure if Charlie said this earlier or not, we'd love to put a number up on the screen that you can text if you're a guest If you'd like to connect or you would like to fill out what would typically be a connect card, we don't have those cards and pens laying out like we typically do um, just for COVID reasons, but we will have a number right here. You can text the word connect to that number and we'll send you a link today on how you can fill out a digital connect card. And that allows us to follow up and see if there's any way that we could serve you, maybe just meet you over the phone. Um, So that's available for you as well today. Are we in Ecclesiastes 8? Some of you are like, I'm still trying to find it. It's a little bit of a speck of a book in the Old Testament. It's easy to blow through. It's going to be good for us. We've been in a series, if you're new, going through the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a little bit more of a volatile passage. I mean, listen, election day is in a couple weeks. Is everyone excited about that? Yeah? If it's anything like 2020, it's going to be smooth sailing. Just trust me on that. No problems. Listen, your Bible is going to get political today. Okay? I know it's not considered polite to talk about politics and religion. This passage is going to talk about both today. Um, Some of you are already tense. That's all I've said so far. Um, But listen, God's going to be very kind in how he shows us who Christ is more clearly, even in a 3,000-year-old passage like this. Because as I said last week, your Bible is sufficient to lead you in a good, godly life in any direction. 
If this is all you add, it is sufficient to lead you to enjoy Jesus and glorify him in how you enjoy him and make disciples who will make disciples in all areas of life, whether you're at work or at play, with your mouth, with your family, with your money, and even as we're going to see today, even in how we should submit, submit to imperfect governance from imperfect kings all over the world. Okay, Because the big question for you and me today is how do we interact as a people with imperfect rulers? What we'll call kings, presidents, prime ministers. How do we interact with them? Should we submit or not? How do you know? Right? Let me remind you before we even jump in, who is writing this? Because now is one of those moments where it really matters. Solomon is a king. He's a king that nobody said no to. Nobody would tell him no. His wisdom and his power was not just known biblically, but extra biblically. Historians all over the world would be able to point back and say how huge his power was, the scope of Solomon's rule. So when the wisest, most powerful nation leader in history speaks on how maddening it can be to live under imperfect rule, we should listen. We should listen. I mean, if TED Talks existed back then, this would be his area of expertise, and that matters when someone is an expert in something. You know, I took a class on clear communication many years ago, and lots of people could teach a class on how to communicate clearly and how to communicate um, not with words but just with body language. Lots of people can, t t can teach that. I got to learn it from the most decorated ranger in Army history. And he had had to rely on clear communication so many times in dire situations that I listened to him very differently than I would have listened to somebody else. A couple years after that, I got to sit down and learn and sit at the feet and learn from a Michelin star chef on the value of how a meal flows and what hospitality can look like when it's a beauty to other people who weren't expecting it. And you got to know I listened to him differently. As I say to people all the time, we listen to different people differently, right? This, today, is going to come from a frustrated, broken king. And he's speaking to people who are imperfectly governed. Okay? Just so we're all on the same page. So let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We are moving through this book. And then this is the word of Solomon to you and me. But it is going to point us to Christ as the hero of this whole book. And he says, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit, some of your Bibles say wind, or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war now, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried, 
They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, And to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find out. Okay, the big picture in this passage is of an imperfect ruler who's demanding submission as he does whatever he pleases without question. We catch that mostly in the earlier parts of this passage, the earlier verses, and it unpacks a little bit in detail as you go on. But he basically says in the first part of this, obey the rulers that God has established in their rule and don't be quick to abandon or rush away from their presence and don't be quick to do evil because his word is unquestionable And it's unpredictable, so follow the law. Being wise with what you do and with what you say, because there's a time for it. But what about when the king's command is to your hurt, as he says in this passage? What about when the ruler is not so wise, not so righteous? Should you submit then? Are you allowed to submit and just have a bad attitude about it? What about this thing that we keep hearing about in the news called civil disobedience? What is civil disobedience? Full disclosure on this. I personally, I am frustrated with imperfect authorities and unpredictable rule. Just like you, probably. I'm frustrated with it. I'm also frustrated when the wicked aren't punished speedily enough and so others rush in to be wicked. I'm frustrated when the righteous aren't protected. I'm frustrated when justice is dropped. I'm frustrated, just like many. But I am called to submit. That's the leading prompt for you and me, and this is to submit. Now, we typically only like to submit with those that we agree with, right? But friends, hear me. That's called agreement. That's not called submission. By very, by very virtue of the word, submission assumes that there is a low-grade disagreement of some shape or form. And whether we like the idea of submission or not, we all do it, don't we? We're all called to submit. That's why you follow speed limits. That's why you pay your taxes. We might hate it, but we do it. And you know why we hate it, why we hate submission? Because it's a felt restriction of freedom. We feel oppressed. We feel shut down and restricted. There's a piece of the soul of mankind whenever we are being called to submit that says, but you are oppressing me. 
but you are holding me down. You are holding me back. And you got to know that's a garden-born thing that our soul is screaming in that moment. That goes all the way back to the garden. When Adam, pre-sin, says, but God is oppressing me. God is holding me back. I want to be totally free to do anything I want in this garden. And he's saying to me, no. And I don't like it. I got to tell you, I love the timing of this passage. It's perfect for election month in 2020. Is it not? When we've got imperfect and unpredictable rulers, and we're looking at them, we're voting for them, and then we're having to decide how we're going to submit. That's a big question for the church today, submit or not. Submit or not. When do you pay taxes and when do you push tea into the harbor? It's a big question. It's a real question with real ramifications. And I think it's important to know that the repeated lesson for you and me, all seven chapters, now eight, eight chapters we are into this, is that there's nothing to be found in this life under the sun, as he calls it, except for frustration. <laughs> life under the sun is this idea that God is not even in the equation. He's definitely not in the middle. So if you're ever going to find ultimate meaning and ultimate satisfa satisfaction, you've got to find it in the things of the world, but you're never going to find it in God. That is what it means to live Life under the sun, which is a phrase repeated over two dozen times in this work. Right? That's the repeated lesson, is that there's nothing but frustration waiting for us. But then the gospel comes by, not to disagree with that, but collaborate with the book of Ecclesiastes and saying, but when God is in the middle and Christ is your ultimate satisfaction, when Jesus, our hero, becomes the centerpiece of your story, then and only then does a life of futility become a life of meaningfulness. No longer as all things are vain, but now all things have meaning. How we work, how we play, how we spend, how we do everything. That's been the repeated lesson. Because we have Solomon doing these repeated experiments, doing everything he can as a man with ultimate power and ultimate money, looking to find meaning in this world without God. He does it through fixing things, through building things, through achievements, power, money. What is he doing? He's trying to fix a key internal problem with external things. He has a key internal malfunction, a very big issue, and he's trying to use external things to fix it. And that's exactly what we do. We're all very Solomon-esque in the same way we do the exact same thing. In this case today, with this, with this passage, we want better kings, better rulers. We're convinced that we are one king away from a better, perfect kingdom, are we not? And predictably, we as a nation do this every four years. Even today, aren't we either two weeks away from like the better days of our nation headed in a perfect direction or two weeks away from utter destruction? It feels like it. Word, uh, this, is, this is the word of the year, 2020, unprecedented. I don't think it's a virus or a pandemic. I think the word unprecedented is probably the big word that we have used most often. But is it unprecedented? Really? You know, I looked to see who was president and running for president when my grandfather was born. It was Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, 1912, was running for office and he was running against Taft and Roosevelt. He was a Democrat. A Republican came before him. A Republican came after him. And they were fighting it out. Taft, Roosevelt, and Wilson. And America was eventually convinced that Wilson would be the best ruler, that he would be the one to solve all of their biggest problems, right? These are some of the issues. This is crazy. 
These are some of the issues that they would campaign about and argue and debate on. Ready for this? Eliminating big business monopolies, right? Women's rights, overhauling tariffs. The same things that we're talking about 19 presidents later. They are still talking about the same things. And you know that during that election in 1912, people were walking up and down the streets, stomping their feet, even here in Knoxville, saying, unprecedented. It's unprecedented. This election's much more crazy than all the ones that are behind us. This is the one. Everything can go downhill. This is an unprecedented season. Listen, 100 years before that, there were people that were about to run for president that were shooting each other in duels. They were probably saying the same thing. This is unprecedented. I'm telling you what, stamping their feet. This is unprecedented. Look, read First and Second Kings on your own time. Read First and Second Kings, and you know what you're going to find? Dozens and dozens of kings coming and going. Some good, most of them not really good. But every time a new king would sit on a throne and put a crown on his head, you know the people were hoping that this would be the one that was better than the last. That this one would be the one. That this one would fix their biggest problems. And you know what? They were always wrong, weren't they? They were always wrong. You know, that's why the book of Kings is in your Bible, First and Second Kings. It's not just to tell you a story. And they aren't just history books. It's to show you that even if we elect and put the best before us to lead us, we are still hungry for the perfect leader. All the kings of our time, all the kings of this life under the sun is never going to be able to do what the uber king will do when he comes to rule us all. Here's the big point that I'm trying to make. Rulers come and go, and yet all of mankind's worst problems persist. We're still fighting about women and their rights, whether it's to vote or to do something else. We're still talking about tariffs, monopolies. We're still talking about social issues. We're still talking about the same things. And now listen, it's true. Some leaders are better than others, right? But here we have words coming from the wisest king during a time of peace and he says, listen, when I set my heart to wisdom, real talk, I can't find it. It's not there. When I set my heart to untangle these key problems, these knots, I can't untie them. Conclusion I come away with when I read that stuff is that we are not one four-year term away from solving our worst issues. We're not. But I think you know that, right? You know that. No matter who wins in a couple weeks, this passage is going to find you and me just as faulty and imperfect as the rulers we're looking to put in office, right? We're just as bad. I mean, for instance, we, f- we find this thing called insubordination. We rebel, we push back, we disobey, and we call it civil. We'll even paste a scripture or two next to our rebellion so that we can feel good about how we do it. This is what Paul tells the church in Rome This will be up on the screen. You can stay where you're at in Ecclesiastes. But Paul, speaking to a Roman church, and that's going to be important for us in a moment, he says this in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He meant that. I'll say it again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That right there is a different sermon, is it not? Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. 
Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Here's the context of the church in Rome, because this matters. They experienced oppression far more than we ever could. Slavery was normal back then, by the way. Applauded. Women weren't available to vote. You want to know why? They were a subclass of human. It wouldn't be until Jesus comes that he starts to liberate the personhood of woman. That would be on Christ. He would do that. But up to this point, they were second-class humans. Taxes, those were arbitrary. They would make that stuff up as they went along. Right at the last minute, before they'd sign their name on something, they'd throw another 1% tax in there. Taxes were weaponized back then to keep some people way down and to elevate other people in perpetuity. And Paul knew this. He knew all of this when he was speaking to an oppressed people group. And yet he still says insubordination to authorities is insubordination to God himself. That's what he says. And yet, do we not have evidence in the Bible of times and in moments where men and women of God would stand up in insubordination to the glory of God and tell a ruler, no, we do. We do. Acts 4. Stay where you're at. So they called them. These are the authorities of a small town. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whatever it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And if you look back further in history, you see the three Hebrews in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, tell the most powerful king on earth at the time, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Friends, that's called Christian civil disobedience. That's what they were doing in that moment. Where in the face of rulers, we say no. No. But how do we know? How do we know which one we do? The quick of it is this. We disobey the government when the rulers tell us we cannot worship God and we cannot obey God. Not when it restricts our felt freedoms. Not then. In other words, when an authority comes and commands you and me to worship an idol or tells us we cannot give the reason for the hope that we have in Christ, at that time we are still courageous and we stand rigid before the mouths of lions and fiery furnaces. We do not budge an inch in those moments. And if the sword comes, so be it. I'll see you there. And we can count it a glory to be worthy of the persecution that our, our Savior found. And we'll join the multitudes that Jesus himself smiles upon in Revelation 6. However, we do not express Christian civil disobedience when the kings of the world limit our freedoms, when they limit our preferences. i got to be honest, in my opinion, this is where the church looks the goofiest, when the world just kind of scratches their head when they look at us. I mean, do you not agree with the speed limit? Obey it anyway. You don't like your taxes? Join the club. Pay it anyway. Pay them anyway. I know it's a restriction. I get it. I know it hurts. I got it. You know, back in March and April, whenever uh, churches were not allowed to meet by command of the king, you could say, we weren't able to meet because of the virus. No one knew what was going on. Everyone's just shutting doors on everything, right? And we were part of that. You would be shocked at how many people were upset that pastors were selling out to the government and not gathering because our freedoms as a church 
or being restricted. I got to tell you, I didn't like it either. But the government wasn't telling us we couldn't be Christians anymore. They weren't even telling us we couldn't obey God. And they weren't oppressing the church any more than they were the movie theater or the gym or the restaurant down the road. In fact, if you look in history here in our country back in the 1940s, there was a blackout command on the East Coast during World War II. And the churches were told not to meet on Sunday evenings anymore. Now, this is in a culture and in a time where that was a a primary block of meeting time. And they were told not to do that at night so that the lights in the church house would not be targets for possible incoming planes. And the church cooperated because nothing weird was being asked of them that was above reason. They knew it was temporary and they knew it was for everybody. So they cooperated. They did not resist in the name of a restriction on their freedom. Listen, I get it. I didn't like it. And I think sometimes we feel a restriction on our freedom and we say, okay, I'll submit. I got it. I'll submit. But I'm going to let the world know that I don't like it. I'm going to let everybody know. I'm going to wear a shirt that says I don't like it. I'm going to put a sticker on my car that talks about how I don't like it. And I'm going to bang it out on Facebook and let the whole world know how I don't like this. I'll submit. But it's like you barely submit, right? Listen, this is, this is what we see in the book of Titus. This is going to be in Titus 3. It's just five verses. You can stay where you're at. And this is what Paul says to a disciple. Remind them. These are Christians in Crete. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hatred by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He says, be eager, be glad, be gentle, be courteous. Why? Because we have the Spirit of God in us. And a life of demanding our own preferences That's behind us. It's behind us. Let me drill this down just a little bit in 2020. The Constitution of the United States of America has got to be one of the greatest documents on earth. I mean, the Bible I'd put up at number one, maybe the Magna Carta is up there. I can even barely remember what was even in that, but I'm sure it was important because they taught me in school it was. So it's got to be in the top five. I would put this in the top three, right? The Constitution of the United States of America has got to be one of the greatest documents ever rendered. And still, if the rulers of the world come and edit that document or just copy, delete portions of that document so that this country looks less and less and less like the country that your great-grandparents grew up in, we still, as a church, reserve our courageous disobedience for whenever the kings say, you cannot be Christians. Not for when we have our taxes raised or whenever our gun rights are meddled with. Not then. I think the church today sometimes can act like Christ himself signed the Constitution and there's blood from the cross all over it, and that's just not the case. It's not the case. Listen, if you don't like the way that kings rule, become one. 
Become a legislative influencer. Run for office at any degree. Or how about this, just vote, right? You could vote. But rebellion is probably less of an option than you originally thought. Insubordination. Crisis is not impressed with insubordination when it has nothing to do with our faith. Because the Constitution is not the Bible, and the Bible is not the Constitution. There are times for the church to rise up and stand no. We see this in the case of slavery, both overseas and here, right? But not all infractions against your freedoms are infractions against the word of God or your faith. So be very, 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 very careful. And listen, I realize a lot of you disagree with me right now. I get it. I came up here knowing that that was going to happen. But it's upon you, not me. It's upon you to tell me how these verses don't mean what they say they mean. And if they don't mean what they say they mean, then what do they mean? What is Paul talking about in Romans if he's not talking about exactly this? What is he saying to Titus if he's not saying exactly this? And it might be muddy for some of you. I know some of our personalities, if you're on the Enneagram, you're like a one or something that's high justice, you know. Some of our personalities, we just like flipping things over and setting them on fire whenever we see injustice. This might be a topic of interest for you, right? On our website, you scroll down to the bottom of the front page, there's a blog there. All it is is a link tree to about five or six videos and articles that maybe will go a little bit deeper into what civil disobedience looks like for the Christian. When the church says no and when it does not. I'm not going to take much more time on it today, so I felt like that might be helpful for you. Because again, I'm grumpy about my tax rate. Inside, I get a little grumpy when power is bent to benefit a people group at the cost of another people group. I get grumpy at that. I get grumpy whenever the government steps in or overly regulates. I could feel it. I could feel it in my insides, right? This, this, this thing that wants to say, but you're oppressing me. You're holding me down. You're asking me to submit. And so here's my temptation. Number one is to be insubordinate. Two, to submit, but do it loudly. Three, to badmouth everyone who disagrees with me. Those are my temptations. You see how much just like you I am? <laughs> We're the same. We could be so atheistic, so atheistic, when we trust only in mankind to fix mankind. I'm obviously not talking about external issues like malaria or building the bigger, better solar panel or fixing identity theft. I mean, obviously God has gifted mankind to fix external problems in creative ways, to take things that are difficult externally and to fix them. A lot of you have jobs where that's exactly what you do. But I'm talking about internal issues, right? Internal issues that we use external remedies for. Like lust and unforgiveness and toxic ambition and depression and insecurity and shame. And you got to know more school isn't going to fix that. More legislation isn't going to fix that. More medications, not going to fix that. This is what we see the psalmist say in the 20th Psalm. He says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we, we, meaning those who love God, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. You need to know that your worst problem, your key issues are not external ones. I know that they look like they are. They are internal problems. It's internal that you're fighting the fight that you're fighting. We can't legislate lust away. How do you do that? Right? We can't do that. Jealousy, you can't flush that out with more education. These are external issues. 
But really, our problem is an internal one. Even in cases like depression or anxiety, you can only treat those things. You can't fix them. Not with external things. Not with external things. It's the starvation of the soul that makes man act like bitter, broken animals. That's our soul that does that. This is what Derek Kidner says. He's a great voice in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he says very well right here, at every turn, this chapter will face us with our inability to call and tune and master our affairs. On one level after another, we find ourselves pinned down, hunted down, and disoriented. I agree. But why is, why is trusting Christ the answer for us? Even if he's right, even if this wise, frustrated king is right about what does not work. How do we know that Jesus works? How do we know? I'll tell you. God knew that we would be failed at every corner by broken leaders, doing the best they can to lead broken things in a broken way. He knew that we would be frustrated and failed. So he himself comes as a king. He comes as a king. The over king, the uber king, the ultimate king. The wisdom that Solomon is hunting for so hungrily here, this wisdom is actually a person, the person of Christ. And the bad taste you have in your mouth for yet another imperfect leader, that's only going to be met, not by a better king here, but by the greatest servant leader that we've ever had in the cosmos coming to serve you and me. I mean, the one thing, th there's, there's a lot of things that are unique about this election cycle. I mean, we can go on and on about how it's a unique one. It is, it's, it's a little unique. But one thing that stands out is how ho-hum everybody is about the two candidates. Even their own candidate, whether you're a donkey or an elephant in here, everybody's like, ah, oh, God, I mean, it's who we got, you know. This is who we have. Did you know that you'll never be satisfied by the kings of the world? You'll never be 100% satisfied. You know why? Because you were created to hunger and to submit to a perfect leader, a perfect king. Your heart was broke for anything else. Just take a look at the first nine verses, just a broad scope. And you see more than just a description of how frustrating things can be when people are submitting to broken authorities. You see an invitation begging for a better governor and one who, in fact, will come a thousand years later. Jesus is the king that says we don't need to rush from his presence, verse 2, but we can stay as long as we want. Jesus does whatever he pleases, but the good thing for us is he pleases what pleases his father, and that's good for you and it's good for me, verse 2. Jesus is not unpredictable, but he's consistent with his grace, verse 4. Jesus' word is supreme, and his wise, thoughtful plan can never be questioned. Verse 4, Jesus knew what would happen, and he still took the heavy trouble of mankind upon his own shoulders. Verse 7, Jesus does have the power to retain both the wind of creation and death itself. Verse 8, Jesus is kingly, not to your hurt, but to his own hurt. Verse 9. You see this passage? It's talking about imperfect rulers and insubordinate people, certainly. But it's here to prepare your heart as an insubordinate people for a perfect ruler who will come for us even though we rebel, even though we push back, even though we stand and say no when we should not. 
This means you're free. You're free from the just demanding your own preferences and your freedoms. You can lay them down. You can put them down just as he did. He laid his preferences down. He laid his freedoms down. He laid them down. And, and us in the shape of Christ have the freedom to do the same thing. Why? Because Jesus is better. God is better. Christ is better. That's why you could be rotting in jail with all of your freedoms removed, with injustice swirling around you, and still be the most free person who has ever lived. The most liberated soul. And this changes how we see authority. Because we can obey the command of the king when it's glorifying to God, and we can push tea into the harbor when it glorifies God as well. We can do both. But we do neither when it glorifies ourself for ourself. And listen, if you're like me, some of you really struggle with this, and I'm glad. I'm glad because it's revealing a piece of our lives that we've been unwilling to give to God, right? Where our freedoms have a heavier value to us than obeying God does. I think we should weep for our nation to the glory of God. We should pray for our nation to the glory of God. Be angry at injustice to the glory of God. Vote to the glory of God. But friend, hear me, you are not at the mercy of the next leader. You're not at the mercy of the next leader. You're not at the mercy of a political party or chariots or horses or kings, whether they be donkeys or elephants, you're not at the mercy. And listen, if you're a skeptic in here today, I know pieces of this these texts, especially Romans 13, might be confusing. How can God allow wicked rulers to rule wickedly? It's a good question. It's a good question. And I don't know all the inner gears behind why God allows certain people to rule certain ways in certain places and times. I don't know. I don't know because I don't have the mind of God. But I do know a couple things, the important things. His plans are bigger than mine. I know that. I know his wisdom is far above mine. His thoughtfulness is deeper than mine. His wounds are deeper than mine. His care is deeper than mine. His tears are more consistent than mine. And I trust him. I trust him. He's proved all of this already by how he died on a cross and rose from a tomb. His plans are better. His wisdom is better. His thoughtfulness deeper. His care deeper. I can trust him. I can trust him. Which means I don't have to disobey and just call it something Christian. I can submit when it hurts and I can flip stuff over and set it on fire all to the glory of God when it matters. When it matters. Go ahead and stand with me and we're going to pray. Again, this has been a difficult book to preach. I know it's been a difficult book to go through even from where you're sitting. That passage is proof. It's not like any of the others were easier than that. But what it does show us is how frustrating living life under this sun is. Some of you came in here and you knew this, how frustrating this world is. By the way, can somebody go out and get the communion elements? You got them? Thank you. Raise your hand if you need this. If you want to take communion with us as a church, raise your hand. And Randy will give you a communion thing. Some of you, you're, some of you are getting really good at it and you're grabbing them on the way in. Listen, if you're a Christian and you want to take communion with us, we want to welcome you into this moment. If you're not a Christian, you know, we just maybe would submit that you would take Christ instead. 
that you would focus on what God has done for you in the person of Christ, for your benefit at his cost, as he gives grace to us, even though we don't deserve it, and he's merciful to us, even though we do deserve punishment, he won't give it. This beautiful story of the gospel is emblematic, or the communion is emblematic of that special story. So if you're not a Christian, I want you to consider that. If you are a Christian, we're going to take this together just for a moment. But all of us, Christian, not Christian, walked in here with a deep level of frustration. All of us did. And maybe it's because we're looking for things in this world to make us feel ultimately satisfied, full of meaning. We haven't found it, have we? Hey, Randy, I need one of those too. Just toss it. I want to see if I can catch it. Not really. I'm going to grab one. Thank you. So what this is, is it's an emblem It's a symbol, it's a ceremony, it's all of those things. But it's something very real to us as a church because it's a rally point. We're rallying around a common meal, a table that exemplifies for us what God went through to get you, to pull you close as a king where you never have to rush away. You could bring all your failed nature, you could bring your imperfection and you could sit at his feet and let him adore you and you can adore him for eternity. That's what this represents. Because it cost his life. It cost a broken body. It cost spilt blood. And it also points to a better time when justice won't be dropped, when the frustration is removed. And we sit at a banqueting table taking communion, a big, robust meal with our hero king, our best king, again. It points to another meal where we will be with the saints in the future, in the past, and today. So let's take the bread. You're going to peel back that top layer, the clear wrapper, and then you have the the wafer. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your broken body. How you wore a crown of thorns instead of a crown of gold. That you are king of the Jews, as it said above your head. And you're also king of the cosmos, a title they weren't willing to give you at the time. But we today, we see the thorns, we see the gold, and we know that you're king over all kings. And even the kings of this land, you hold their hearts in your hand like streams. So we take this bread in remembrance and in hope of you. And Father, we thank you for your blood that you shed for us as a church. It's with what you spilled out that you collect a new family around you. We're not just followers of a king. We're children in a family. You give good commands. You give good commands. And we are eager to follow them. And one day, Father, we know that you're bringing us all to a place where there's no more in us that wants to scream out, but you're oppressing me. Where submission becomes easy, fluent. It's not a struggle for us. It'll be a day where all sin and chaos and destruction is removed from your church. And that costs you. It costs you your own blood, the blood of royalty. So we drink this representing the blood of kings and thanksgiving for what you've done for us. So Father, I thank you for the hard work you're doing in all of us. I pray for your Holy Spirit to really lean on us and challenge us. Lord, I know you've been leaning on me and challenging me with this passage 
because, Father, I just want to revolt and I want to rebel and I want to be insubordinate and I want to let everyone know how I might do something, but I'm not going to like it. That's me. And I know I'm not alone. So I pray that you would work on our hearts, Lord, that we would be a church that would stand out like glowing, gleaming lights in a sea of darkness for how we handle ourselves even in 2020. And Father, I know that there are skeptics here and I know that you're working on their heart as well. Pray, I just pray, Lord, that you would give them an assurance, a trust and a faith that you're not just a king that we must be fearful of. Yes, we carry a fear of God, but you're also a king that we could come close to. And we could bring our imperfection, our griminess, our issues, our failures, our regrets, we could bring them all and we can sit at your feet and know that we will be enjoyed by you as we enjoy you. And for the rest of our lives in this life under the sun and for the rest of our lives after this life, we will have you shining in your glory before us. Lord, I pray that you would rescue hearts today. I pray that hearts that came in that were hearts made of stone and unable to respond, Lord, that you would rescue and you put a heart of flesh in them even in this moment. In this moment that you would rescue those far from you and make them close to you. So Father, we love you and I pray that you would do this this morning right before our eyes. Lord, it's in your name that we pray and it's in your name that we celebrate this. Amen. Listen, if that's you and you gave your life today, maybe this is a day that you have questions about Christ, you want to talk to somebody about it, we'll be available for you. I'll be out in the foyer. If you want to come and talk to me, I'd love to talk to you. love to pray with you. Okay? If you need to talk to me about anything else, I'll be out there. We'll also have pastors milling around. Scott's right there. Scott, would you raise your hand? Scott would love to talk to you. Matt's behind him. Matt, would you raise your hand? Matt's available. These are people that would love to talk to you. Let us be helpful for you as a church.